you know, but, but sir, we've seen incoherence from this administration, no defined policy on Ukraine, no defined objective of what winning, you know, looks like. I think a lot of Americans are, are asking, you know, how much more money, how much more time, how much more human suffering? Well, they have effectively a blank check policy with no clear strategic objective identified. And um, these things can, can escalate, and I don't think it's in our interest to be getting into proxy war with China getting involved uh, over things like the borderlands or, or over Crimea. So I think it would behoove them to identify what is the strategic objective that they're trying to, to achieve, uh, but just saying it's an open-ended blank check, uh, that is not acceptable. This is The Middle with Anthony Weiner. Unplugged. Welcome to episode 18 of The Middle Unplugged, a break in the middle of the week when we reclaim the microphone from the far left and the far right and try to carve out some time for a less shrill and less extreme and generally less angry conversation. I'm Anthony Weiner. So President's Day was Monday and our president showed up in Ukraine of all places to lend support. If you were thinking there's something amazing about the picture, a U.S. president in a literal war zone, not in a country that we controlled parts of, air raid sirens going on, a real war zone. You're right. That hasn't happened in our lifetime. The story of how he got there was pretty incredible. Presidents have their every move reported as it happens, and it's also reported in advance. So to pull off something like this involves no end of kind of low-key deception and really tough decisions about who you tell and what you tell them. In this case, I guess they chose two journalists, one from the Wall Street Journal and one from the Associated Press. Usually they'll have like a dozen or so on every trip. And the short version of this is that Air Force One left for a trip to Poland in the middle of the night and then took a train for about 10 hours. And the trip to Poland, from my understanding, had already been planned. And I say that, that they took Air Force One because any plane that the president is on is designated that. But in this case, it was a C-30 transport plane, and I think they used that because it requires a shorter runway, just in case they had to, I don't know, land somewhere else. They refueled in, in Germany at Ramstein Air Base. We hear that a lot. That's where you know people who are you know, prisoners or hostages, they stop there first. It's a hospital. I've actually been there. And then they continued to Poland, and they were taken by motorcade, for about an hour to the Polish border. And then they did something really unusual that rarely happens. Our president, we go by, you know, they travel by American planes, American, American helicopters, American cars, you know, our stuff. Those of us in New York City, we know that whenever the president comes to town, it's his helicopters waiting. His version of the beast is waiting. The Anyway, so they take this train ride, an all-night train ride, and it's just remarkable to see the president there with Zelensky. And here we are, we're one year into this war, and if expectations are the measure of whether you're winning or not, you have to say that Ukraine, the Ukrainians are definitely winning. Try to find a single expert who thought that Russia would do anything less than simply roll through Ukraine. The Kremlin even told Russian officers to pack dress uniforms and medals so they would look good when they had their parades in Kiev. And so I guess this brings us to our number of the week. And that's 200,000, 200,000 Russian casualties, 60,000 have been killed. And these are based on American and allied kind of estimates. No one knows for sure. And you heard at the top about defining success. That was Ron DeSantis trying on his foreign policy hat, trying to 
come up with the way that many Republicans are trying to do that to make any of this look bad for Biden, find ways to criticize Biden in the process of talking about the war. I mean, and, you know, they talk about what's the definition of success? Well, here's one definition of success. Is Putin failing? And the answer is he clearly is. I mean, let's look at look at I mean, look at it. You know, Putin said he began the war to stop the expansion of NATO. Well, today, two new countries have applied for membership since the war, Sweden and Finland. And so much for stopping expansion. You've got two more. And Putin said he wanted to stop the economic and political migration of Ukraine towards the West. Well, as a result of the war, Ukraine is well on the way to being included in the European Union. And because of the war, Ukraine is switching over faster and faster every day to newer and better NATO-compatible weapons. Putin had been successful, for example, in years using energy to keep the Western Europe hostage. And that's failing. Not only has that not worked, but Germany has gone from a national posture of kind of sitting on its hands to now they're the ones leading the charge. And all of this is profoundly good for the United States of America. You want to talk about defining success. If Putin's success is is our failure, Putin's failure is our success. But we still see the Republicans, you know, using these poll tested one liners that you just heard DeSantis use, McCarthy is, has been using them as well to try to appease that far-right element of their party. You know, one thing is this blank check Biden, this whole idea, you know, that we're just writing the Ukrainians a blank check. Well, first of all, there's no check, right? We know that. You just want to make sure all of us, you know, having this conversation do. We're not giving them money to buy things. We've, I've heard some talk about, oh, corruption of that government. We're, we are using money to buy stuff to replenish our supplies that we're giving to them. Like we're giving them the hardware and that hardware is doing exactly what we bought it to do to win a war against an enemy. We've also heard many on the right and even some on the left say this too, you know, don't provoke Putin. This argument I don't really understand. Provoke him to do what? He's already invaded a country. He's already attacking civilians. I know this whole like, well, what about the nukes? Well, you can't be half pregnant here. Do the critics want our national policy to be that any nation that has nuclear weapons can do whatever they want? so long as they don't use them. In that case, just say that and say that that covers China as well. And then I've heard this rhetorical flourish, be more concerned about our borders and less concerned about those in Ukraine. Well, let me turn that around a little bit. Isn't that another way of saying that whatever the Russians want to do is fine because borders are not that important? You got to make up your mind. If you're a border zealot, obviously we all believe there should be national borders, but if you care about international respect for borders, you can't say we don't care about theirs. But at the end of the line, the Republicans who criticize Biden, and to be clear, the overwhelming number of Republicans are supportive of what's going on in Ukraine and to their credit. But those ones that who do want to support to criticize Biden, we should keep in mind that a lot of those are the same ones who say things like you use lines about we've got to let those people fight their own battles. You know, that's the isolationist mantra. Let them fight their own battles. Well, here you go. They are. And they're winning with our help and with any of our U.S. bloodshed. But most of the pro-Putin-Biden bashing has come from the MAGA wing. Remember campaign 2016? What was Biden's argument? Biden was saying, look, I have the relationships forged over decades and I understand stuff. You know, his record of being right, quote unquote, has been mixed over those years in service in the Senate and vice president. But the record of holding together this coalition against Putin has been amazing, has been laudable. 
and recalled at the election of Trump in 2016 and the issues surrounding the impeachment of Donald Trump require Trump and a lot of Republicans to downplay and, and to deny the idea of Russian influence, even going as far as to parrot Russian propaganda. It's hard to turn that off now, now that they're out on that pro-Russia limb. And when Trump declared that he believed Putin more than his own officials, a lot of Republicans went along with him. So confronted with the idea that Russia is indeed an enemy, more than a few Republicans in Congress and in Fox are doubling down on this Putin is not so bad talk, you know, led by the Tucker Carlson's of the world. And when Biden just went to visit on President's Day, his big, you know, his big line was one year later, Kiev stands, democracy stands. It's a great line. And the Americans and the coalition that we lead, our worst fears about borders being rewritten by Russian tanks have not been borne out. If anything, it has been the best kind of war, the kind of war our troops don't have to fight. And we'll be right back with Listener Mail. Well, each week we like to dip into the mailbag. There's plenty of ways to reach me here at The Middle Unplugged. You can find me on Twitter at, at @repweiner R-E-P-W-E-I-N-E-R, Anthony D. Weiner at Facebook, Weiner, W-A-B-C, at gmail.com is another way to do it. And unlike our show that we do every Saturday where we get plenty of calls to kind of spur the conversation, I like to respond to some of the mail we get. Sometimes it's on a subject that has been commonly talked about, and sometimes it's just someone shouting at me what they think should go on. This, this week, the letter is from Len in Croton, and just take the money part of the letter here. Why do we treat Mike Pence like some kind of a hero for doing his job on January 6th? If he is such a great American, why won't he tell us what he knows? Well, there is no doubt that there was an effort with the January 6th committee to kind of make a distinction. The insurrection was not about Republicans versus Democrats. It was about Trump and many of his supporters versus, I don't know, versus the United States Constitution, I guess. And to make that case, the committee needed kind of good guy Republicans, and they found them in the two Republicans that were part of the committee, the guy from Illinois, Kinziger, and obviously Liz Cheney. And nearly every one of the witnesses was also Republican. That was a concerted effort to make it very hard for anyone to say this was a Democratic takedown of the Republicans. And they had plenty enough, I guess, information to paint the picture of what happened vis-a-vis Mike Pence, to tell the story of him refusing to go along with the big ask of the insurrectionist in chief. Both the Republicans on the committee and the Democrats saw value in elevating that kind of a hero narrative that Len is referring to. And Len is right. Pence was an enabler all along until one moment when he stopped. It basically says, I've had enough. And that's true of a lot of the witnesses and even a lot of the people who are running for president who used to serve Donald Trump. They were enablers up until the very, very end. But with time that has passed since the January 6th committee, and now more importantly, the appointment of a special prosecutor, Mike Pence may get his time in the barrel. By the way, I looked up where that expression came from. You definitely shouldn't, especially now that I've used it to describe Mike, Mike Pence. Anyway, now Pence is being subpoenaed by Jack Smith, the special counsel, and Pence seems to want it both ways. He wants to hurt Trump, his opponent, but he doesn't want to be seen like he's part of the left mob coming down on Trump. 
He wants to kind of walk that fine line. And he's come up with kind of a novel way to fight this subpoena that he doesn't have to talk. You know, part of it might be that he wants to be forced to talk, (laughs) you know, like, oh, you know, please stop me from doing this, but hopefully I still have to go ahead and testify. But anyway, he knows that the idea of executive privilege isn't going to fly. The courts have already cleared up that issue, this idea that anything the president talked about with him couldn't you can testify. There's an exception to that. If you're if you're using executive privilege to plot violating the law, then it doesn't hold. But Pence is trying something else that's very interesting here. He's trying to argue that he shouldn't have to testify because of separation of powers. And it's this foundational idea enshrined in the Constitution that the executive branch, in this case, the Justice Department, can't arrest people it doesn't agree with. I mean, this was a fundamental element of kind of our relationship with the king. Part of the way it does it is with what is called the speech and debate clause, which is Article 1, Section 6, Clause 1. And I'll just read it because it's interesting. The senators and representatives shall receive a compensation for their services. They shall be paid to be ascertained by law and paid out of the Treasury of the United States. That part of it is so you can't basically starve members of Congress into agreeing with you by cutting off their salary. They shall, and this is the important part, they shall in all cases, except treason, felony, and breach of the peace, be privileged from arrest during their attendance at the session of their respective houses and in going and returning from the same. And for any speech or debate in either house, they shall not be questioned in any other place. So what does this have to do with the vice president, a member of the executive branch? Why would he be covered by the separation of powers executive from the legislative? Well, a tiny part of his job is legislative. As we all know, both from our studies of the Constitution in high school and also from watching what goes on at the United States Senate and State of the Union every once in a while, the vice president is called upon to break ties recently with an evenly divided Senate. We've seen that happen frequently. And as we now know from the January 6th committee hearings and watching the election of 2016 get litigated, the vice president acts as kind of like the person in the Senate that reads the results of the Electoral College. He is arguing, Pence is arguing, that since he has those legislative roles, he should be covered by the speech and debate clause. And you might be saying, oh, that's a novel idea. It is. It's a very interesting notion. And there's not a lot of case law around it. Now, why is it, what may wind up happening? What probably winds up happening, if I had a guess, is that some judge will say, well, you can be asked about some things and not others. You know, you can be questioned about, about other elements of the relationship with the president and maybe not specifically about what you did that day on January 6th. But all that being said, one of the objectives I think here is by Pence to kick the can as far as he can so that he can go out on the campaign trail and say, hey, I'm a loyal Trump guy and these Democrats are coming to get in. And and, I mean, he's trying to have it both ways. But unlike the executive privilege claim, which has a lot of case law behind it, this is a very interesting. The best I've been able to find doing some research on this has never been a vice president who has claimed separation of powers immunity from being questioned in a case. And so it'll be interesting to see how that goes. So what's my ruling on that question from Len in Croton is that, yeah, he should not be treated like a hero in the land of the blind. The one eyed man is king. And the fact that he just did his job does seem to show uh, at least some notable exception to the rule of the, of the MAGA of playbook. But I think he should have to answer for all of his 
his um, his actions leading up to January 6th. So that is the show for the week. Like I said, plenty of ways that you can reach out to me in the future. I also encourage you to share this if you like it, to rate it on the podcast platform that you use. You can also get copies in a separate feed of The Middle, the show I do at two o'clock on Saturdays and Left versus Right, the one I do with Curtis Lewa on three o'clock on Saturdays. You can get them at the Red Apple Podcast Network. I want to express a special gratitude. I should do this in every episode to Michael Garcia, the producer and engineer and sound designer of the program, although today I did the show remotely, so if it sounds a little less good, that's not his fault, it's mine. And I want to thank you all for all of your support, and we will see you next week. This lands in your box every, every week Wednesday morning. And this is the end of The Middle Unplugged.